Well, good morning, Faith. Welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in the life of Christ during His lifetime. And it's important to remember that everything that Jesus did, He did with a purpose and with a plan. Jesus didn't wake up in the morning going, well, what am I going to do today? I got no idea. I don't know what I'm Let, Let's go down to Galilee. Let's go over to Capernaum. Let's go to Jerusalem. They love me in Jerusalem. And as Jesus' time on earth grew closer to his crucifixion, his focus became even more intense. Luke 9.51 tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And that same focus applies to everything that Jesus did. It was certainly true when he sent the disciples and 72 others out to every town and place that he was going to go on his way to Jerusalem. Lance discussed that last week. It was all for the purpose of the gospel, as Lance pointed out, including the power that he gave them to cast out demons. But he said to them, their rejoicing wasn't being in the power that they had, but rather that their names were written in heaven. Now, not only could they cast out demons, they could even tread on snakes and scorpions. Now, anyone who has ever tread on a snake knows they don't take to that too kindly. I did that once by accident. I was hiking a trail around Lock Raven Dam, and I came around a corner, and I wasn't paying attention, and I accidentally stepped on a sunbathing snake. Now, I don't know which of us was more afraid, me or the snake, but I know we were both jumping around trying to get out of each other's way. The idea Luke is conveying here is that they could move about without fear of anything. But Jesus warned them, don't let that power go to your head. Be glad, rather, that your name is written in heaven. So why am I telling you this? Well, in 1992, Integrity Music began recording a series of CDs of Scripture verses put to music. Let me tell you, they were well done well-crafted. And the first one that we bought at Greenleaf Christian Bookstore up on Joppa Road, those who may remember where that was, was a preview collection of Scripture memory songs. And at the time, my oldest daughter Jennifer was seven years old and in the second grade. By the time she was eight and in the third grade, this had become one of ours and certainly one of her favorite CDs to play. We knew all the songs by heart. And one of her favorite songs was called, I Have Given You, written by Don Moen and Linda Shazo. It was Luke 10, 19, put to music. The words went this way, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Interesting lyrics for a song. And she knew every word. And by golly, that was the whole point. Memorization through music. David says in the Psalms, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What a great way to memorize Scripture. Music is an, is a, an amazing memory maker. Let me demonstrate. I'll sing the first line of a song, and you sing the next line. We, you can do that. We can do this. So here we, here we go. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer... Oh, look at that. Look at you. It's amazing. Look at you. All right. A, B, C, D, H, I, J, K, 
Oh, you even know your alphabet. This is great. We could do a children's CD. One more. The eensy-weensy spider climbed up the water spout. Oh, oh, look at that. You learned those songs as kids, and you still remember all the words. The elders and deacons were meeting this past Wednesday, and we talked about having a memory verse a month next year for the whole church. Perhaps, Jessica, we can find 12 that are words put to music. Maybe Luke 10, 19 will be one of them. Now, I was going to play a little of this song for you. I see Frank's not there. I don't know that it's going to come up because I'm not connected. But the song, I can tell you, was pretty catchy. Jake, you there? Let's see if we can get it up. There you go. This is it. Jesus said... Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome some of the power of the enemy and to overcome almost all of the power of the enemy. What was that again? How much? Let's think about it. Given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Catchy, isn't it? Catchy. It's a great song. I bet you it'll be stuck in your head the rest of the day. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. They will stick with you as they stuck with an eight-year-old girl, my daughter Jennifer, when one day in class in the third grade, she had to use one of her vocabulary words in a sentence. Guess what word that was? It was the word authority. So what do you think she wrote down in the third grade? I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to cover, overcome all the power of the evil one. Nothing can harm you. We thought it was amazing. And then we thought nothing more of it. That was until we got a call from the teacher of her classroom. She wanted us to come down to school to discuss a very important matter. I mean, what could it be, we wondered. She was always well-behaved. I mean, she, was, she got all A's. It's the Asian thing. You know, you never come home with an A. Your mom's going to say, why not A+. plus? It's an Asian thing. We knew she got great grades. When we got there, we were presented with the sentence that our daughter had written and then asked if we allowed our daughter to handle snakes and scorpions. Were we in some kind of cult? They wanted to know if we was like from the Appalachian Mountains handling snakes and scorpions. 
Now, had I known that was going to be the question, for sure, I would have come with rubber snakes and scorpions in my pocket. I bet you I could still hear that poor woman scream. It was one of the weirdest opportunities to talk about the Bible and Jesus and what was in the Gospels. Apparently, that same power from Jesus, even figuratively, is available to you today. Well, let's pray and see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are here with us all the time. You never leave us or forsake us. You never sleep or slumber, the Scriptures tell us. Now, we can turn to you at any time. And Father, you want all of us. You want all of us, not some of us, but all of us, to worship you, to love you, and to be part of what you have going on. Father, we thank you for that call in our lives. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to talk about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. These were Jesus' words to the large crowds that were following him. Now, I would normally have the words up here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. There are Bibles under the rows in front of you, or you may have your phones or your own Bible with you. It's always a good idea to come with the Word of God, be equipped with that, and have your own copy of God's Word. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. This is how it goes. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, Idiot, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In Wyoming, there is a beautiful section of country called the Bridger Wilderness. The Bridger Wilderness rests in the Wind Valley mountain range and extends for 80 miles along the Continental Divide. It is stunningly beautiful. It is home to seven of the ten of the world's largest glaciers. It's a landscape filled with high alpine lakes, glaciers, wide sweeping valleys, my kind of vacation spot but not my wife. She's a city girl. Hey, we're getting somewhere. I'd love to see it too. If you start the PowerPoint, it will, should fix itself. While they're doing that, we'll keep going. Apparently, there are some others who don't share a full sentiment for this wonder of nature. 
Now that you got it up, let me see if I can get to the spot where we need to be. There we go. Whoops. Let's go back one. The Bridger Wilderness. There it is. Pretty place. My kind of vacation spot. There's a little icon along the lower picture. You'll see that you have to click to turn off that uh, reading of text. It's here in my voice and printing out what I'm saying. Underneath of the picture, you'll see a series of icons. It's one of those. So, apparently not everyone shares the sentiment for enjoying nature. There you go. Trails need to... Uh, these were... Listen to these comments from people who visited the park. They were given to the ranger when they were leaving the park. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Now, how are you going to avoid building a trail that goes uphill in that wilderness? Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness and get rid of the area of these pests. Please pave the trails. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike up to them. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please call me. And finally, a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Too many rocks in the mountains. I don't think these people really understood what it means to stay or visit a wilderness area. They were looking for something convenient and comfortable, but not truly a wilderness experience. When my wife and I honeymooned 39 years ago, it was at Harrington Manor State Park in Oakland, Maryland. We stayed in a log cabin. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Maybe today it might be. Today the cabins have all of the modern conveniences, except air conditioning, but back then they were rustic. I mean, you could see through the walls in spots outside. Now granted, they were small spots, but still. There was a family of the cutest little mice living in one of the kitchen drawers. Every woman's dream. Now I'm loving this. Not my wife. The last time we were there, we shared the cabin with a brown bat. I discovered that at night when it over top of my face. I said, I know what that is. It's a bat. We've had experience with bats before, even in our own home. I wanted to take her on a short eight-mile hike to Swallow Falls. Sounds short to me. One of the prettiest waterfalls in Maryland. We went about a thousand feet through the woods where we had to cross a road to continue onto the trail, and she stopped dead in her tracks. She turned to me and she said, I'll wait here, and you go back and get the car, and you come and pick me up. But I said, I don't know where we are. She said, you'll figure it out. You can drive me there or I ain't going. I told her we'd be in the wilderness, but I don't think this is what she was expecting. Jesus' opening declaration was likewise a shocker. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus really saying that I have to hate my parents, my wife and children, brothers and sisters, my own life? How can this be when everywhere else in Scripture, Jesus and the rest of the Scriptures say the exact opposite? Paul tells the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
David said in the Psalms, children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring, a reward from Him. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. The fourth of the big Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Jesus himself said, My commandment is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Finally, Paul told Timothy, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, then what is Jesus saying? Jesus is making a shocking point to get our attention by using an extreme comparison. He is saying that if you want to be my disciple and you really want to understand what that means, then here it is. Your love for me, by comparison, must make everything else look insignificant. Hate in Hebrew carries a sense of scale by comparison. I like this way more than that. Not the emotional, visceral attachment that we assign to that word. When we see a large man, we say, that guy's as big as a house. Well, we don't literally mean he's as big as a house. We mean that he is, you know, volumetrically challenged on a larger than normal scale. What Jesus was saying is that paradoxically, our love for him must be so great, so pervasive, that our natural love of self and family pales in comparison. It's still there. It just pales in comparison. We are to subordinate everything, even our own being, to our love and commitment to Christ. He is to be our first loyalty. All other relationships must take a second place. There was a man, Preston Chilcote, over at Hillendale Bible Chapel. We spent a few years at Hillendale Bible Chapel, now known as Forge Road Bible Chapel. He used to say he had three loves in his life. He called them the three G's. God, Gloria, his wife, and golf. And this man was big time in the golf. He confessed he didn't always keep them in that order. God, Gloria, and golf. Jesus adds that this devotion includes us even taking up our cross. The cross is an instrument of execution. True discipleship is a process of dying to self and embracing Christ even to the point of suffering. Paul said to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. But in all this discomfort and challenge, something beautiful emerges. The tandem challenge to pay a relational cost, to, to hate, if you will, our closest relationships, to pay the sacrificial cost to shoulder death and follow Christ, begins to create a new disciple, a man or a woman who is sharp and pungent, a salty Christian, as Jesus describes him at the end of this section, who brings tang and flavor to life. Everyone benefits, not the least of which is his hated family. Having challenged his hearers about the cost of a discipleship with two parallel sayings, Jesus now uses twin parables of a tower and a war to encourage his followers to count the cost of following him. One is by choice. You want to build a tower? That's your choice. The other is by circumstance, something that happens to him. In either case, you need to sit down and, and measure the cost. The first thing you need to notice is who Jesus is speaking these words to about being a disciple. Luke notes specifically that large crowds were following him and that Jesus specifically turned to them and elaborated on being a disciple. 
Jesus was not talking to those who were antagonistic towards him or to those who were uninterested in his life and message. No, these were people who were traveling with Jesus. They are positive in their attitude toward Jesus. They were interested in what he had to say. They apparently mistaked this positive attitude and interest in Jesus for true discipleship, as many people do today. They considered themselves to be followers of Jesus, but in reality, they were only casual followers and not committed at all. They were willing and even anxious to follow Jesus, provided, of course, that the cost was not too high or that the demands were too great. They were like many people today who who do Christian things. They go to church, they pray, they sing Christian songs, but really aren't committed to Jesus. In a sense, they were just along for the ride, but were unwilling to give up everything in their lives that conflicted with following Jesus in a committed way. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is not someone who wants some of your time. Jesus is not someone who wants some of your attention. Jesus is not someone who wants some of your labor. Jesus is not someone who wants some of your financial resources. What he wants is all of you. Not some of you. All of you. No half measure is going to cut it. I want all of you or none of you. Because what I offer in exchange is beyond compare and your ability to achieve. Jesus said these words. John records them. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. They were like many today who looked to Jesus to solve their money problems, to solve their relationship problems, to solve their health problems, their political problems, their social problems, but who quickly get disillusioned and unwilling to obey Jesus completely when following Jesus doesn't fit their desires or following Jesus makes life harder. Paul says this in his first letter to the Thessalonians, As you know, And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. These large crowds were casual followers, not committed followers. The question today is, which are you? Have you counted the cost? Are you living your life in a way that God would look at and say, this is worthy. This is worthy of who I am. This is worthy of being associated with me. We often quote Romans 10, 9 and 10 when we share the gospel with someone, as though that is all there is to it. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Yes, that's how it begins. Yes, it is only through grace and mercy. Yes, it has nothing to do with our own works. They don't cut it. We could never get there on our own. But that's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Because just a few paragraphs later, two chapters later, if you're following by chapter and verse, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron. Living sacrifice? How can you be a living sacrifice? It's like jumbo shrimp. They don't go together. But living sacrifice is what he calls us to be. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to tell people there is a life-changing cost to being a disciple, but one with an amazing payoff in the end that makes it all worthwhile. Let's not be used car salesmen when it comes to the gospel. If you add it up correctly, you will find, as did Jim Elliott, who died to bring the message of the gospel to the jungles of Ecuador. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Both of these parables emphasize the, necessar- the necessity of careful calculation. Jesus says every would-be disciple must count the cost before he enters discipleship. And what is that cost? Every possession he has, everything he is, in every corner of his life. When many or the things that it buys make us hesitant about doing what we know the Lord is calling us to do, we are instead the disciple of those things and not of Christ. Jesus concludes with a closing remark, as strong as a starting one. Salt, he says, is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. Now, who puts salt on a manure pile? I didn't think it was tastier either way. It was, what does salt on a manure pile even mean? It's not even good enough for a manure pile. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Salt, sodium chloride, it's a pretty stable compound. I was a chemistry major as one of my, that was my first major. I loved school. I had a hard time getting out of school. I wanted to major in everything. My wife eventually made me pick one and finish. Chemistry was my first. Technically, it cannot lose its saltiness, but it can be diluted when mixed with impurities, thus losing its seasoning effect. Just like salt, our commitment to Christ can become diluted. And when that happens, we don't lose our salvation, but we do lose our effectiveness for God. The cost of discipleship produces saltiness. And what Jesus is asking is, are we willing to pay the price? Is it going to be worth it for us to do so? I'm going to wrap up kind of a shorter sermon this morning, but I want to end this morning with a few ways that we might deny ourselves from the Scriptures. Deny yourself sounds pretty simple, But it's not that simple for many. I've met quite a few men and women who gloss over this important command. Others pick and choose the sort of things that they want to deny themselves from, usually unwanted things. It's kind of like going through your closet at home periodically and putting a pile together for the goodwill. Well, that's the stuff you didn't want anyway. That's pretty easy to do. What about the stuff you want to keep? And you just want to get rid of that stuff so you can go buy new things that you want and fill your closet back up again. That's not what Jesus wants. So how do I deny myself? If that's you today, if you're searching for that, well, what if we rephrase the question another way? What if a command was given to you as, you must give up all rights that you think you have? The only way to enjoy the gracious blessing of God in relation is to, relationship is to learn to daily, moment by moment, yield to Him, to give up our rights. Here are just a few rights seven that I'm going to give you this morning, that a true follower of Jesus and disciple must surrender. These are biblically non-negotiable. Number one, we give up the right to take revenge. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. 
Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Number two, we give up the right to hate our enemies. You have heard the law that says, love your enemies and hate your enemies. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. We give up the right to spend money however we please. Don't store up treasure here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and, store, uh, and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. We give up the right to be honored and served. But among you it must be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. Number five, worship team, you can make your way back up. We give up the right to hold a grudge. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Number six, we give up the right to complain. Oh, it's a hard one. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. For in this God's, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. And lastly, number seven, we give up the right to put self first. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look only to your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Denying yourself is not easy, and it's not the same as self-denial. The purpose of self-denial is to focus on self-improvement, whereas denying yourself is denying self-rule. Our flesh desires to sit on the throne of our lives, but only Jesus is truly worthy. As I was writing this yesterday, I was in and out of the U.S. Open to watch Coco Golf win her first U.S. Open at the age of 19. What an athlete she is already. During her award ceremony, she talked about the cost of getting to this point and all the hard work and focus that it took to achieve that goal. It was inspiring. And it had quite a payoff, $3 million for winning. Wow. Well, Jesus had a goal when he came. The writer to Hebrews describes it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, here was His goal, the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Faith Fellowship, don't lose heart in being a salty disciple for Jesus. One who is full of flavor as you share the gospel and how you live your life. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus.